Hello. Hello. Turn to the person next to you. Say, oh, he again. <laughs> nobody, nobody turned. No, like having you. It's good to see you. God bless you all. I want to talk to you. Well, f- firstly, thank you, Anna Novel, for allowing me to speak to the congregation. And uh, I was on holiday a few weeks ago, and I'm kind of still on holiday in my head. I, um, we went to South Africa, where I'm from, and uh, just spent two weeks basically swimming, lying in the sunshine, eating way too much, and, um, and, uh, and visiting friends, and it was amazing. But I did uh, read uh, something in the Old Testament, and uh, it sort of stirred in me, and so I'm going to throw it out your way today. And so I pray that you'd come on, on a journey with me, looking at the Old Testament, And looking at what I believe is a prophetic message for our time. So let's just take a moment, let's just pray um, and just come before the Lord. So Father, I thank you for your church here firstly. Thank you for your people here. I know that you bless where people gather in your name. I know that you bless unity. I just thank you for every person here. I thank you that they, they don't find themselves in this church community by mistake. They don't find themselves here today by mistake. I pray that you would build in them that uh, which is your strength, your foundations. We also confirm and affirm today, Lord, that we believe you, Father of heavenly lights, are the creator of all things. You loved the world, you created the world, you sent your son to die for our sin. And you sent the spirit to be our companion, to walk alongside us. So God, three in one, we pray to you today. We give ourselves to you today. We pray that as we look into the scriptures, Lord, that we would find life, we'd find guidance, just as Paul encouraged that the scriptures are useful for teaching and rebuking and the strengthening of the church, just as Jesus unpacked uh, what we call the Old Testament to show exactly how he is present and how he was foretold. So we look to the scriptures today knowing that you can speak, you do speak, you've given us the words that we need for our time here right now, for this church here right now, for every life here right now, that incredible macro and micro of your kingdom, how you can be so over all the affairs of the world, appointing kings and rulers and, and, uh, and putting an end to their time, and yet you count the number of sand, or you, you th- your thoughts of us are like the sand and the seashore, you count the number of hairs in our head. It's, it's incredible. We, I, think of that, I think of that Psalm 139 which says, you made me in my uh, mother's womb, you put me together, how marvelous. We just, we just stop and consider how marvelous you are. You are marvelous. We just say you are marvelous and you are marvelous, Lord. We don't want to come to the word today, or I don't want to come to the word, Lord, uh, presumptuous. But we come to it in humility, asking you, give us discernment, open our eyes, build here today that you want to build. And everybody says, Amen. Amen. Okay. Let's read the scripture together. Psalm 24, verses 7 to 10. It should come up on the screen behind me. Yes, there you go. Lift up your heads, O you gates. Read with me. And be lifted up, you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, 
the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O you gates. Lift up, you everlasting doors. And the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Selah. Gates. The Bible talks about gates a lot. When I was growing up, my dad owned two farms at two different times in the country just north of South Africa called Namibia. If you don't know much about Namibia, it's about 823,000 square kilometers, of which half of the country uh, has about a million people. So vast swathes of land with very few people in it in the entire south of the country. Spent a lot of time there as a child and loved it and loved these memories of being on the farm. Um, I, I've noticed in the time that I've lived in the UK how pickup trucks, I think is what you would call them, um, has really sort of increased on the roads here, like Isuzu and these kind of things. That's the kind of stuff we grew up on, literally on the back. Um, and uh, the farm life would be kids on the back, you know, it's not sort of Irish or English countryside. It's like arid desert, semi-arid, lots of rocks, lots of bumps. But I loved, loved growing up in that kind of context. But one of the things I hated about those trips was that the kids on the back also meant that we were sort of cheap labor. So when you got to a gate, the kids had to jump off and open the gate, and then we'd drive through, and then we'd have to close the gate and run back up. And, you know, you kind of think, well, you're the kids, but actually it just annoyed me. And so we'd drive these long distances, and, gate, and the gates sort of are important because they're either the boundary of the actual farm, um, you know, bordering the other farms, uh, and certain things you wouldn't want to cross, or within the actual a farm there would be gates for, for the sheep or the cattle and these kinds of things not to, to run around. Gates. Now, the Bible talks a lot about gates, often mentioned in scriptures. Ancient cities had high, thick walls around them to keep out wild beasts, invading armies. Heavy gates were set in those walls to allow entrance and exit. And gatekeepers were stationed there to protect Various kinds of gates. You'd get kingly gates, you'd get palace gates, you'd get temple gates. And besides being part of the security of a city, city gates were also the places of central activity. So the elders would often be found at the gates. Transactions were made legal or court issues were convened. Public announcements were heralded at the city gates. A real intersection of thought and commerce, the hubs of the city. Proverbs 1 talks about wisdom, and it says in uh, verse 21, at the head of the noisy streets, she cries out. In the gateways of the city, she makes her speech. To spread her words thus, wisdom took to the gates to speak to the most amount of people. Let me give you some other references to gates in the Bible. The first time we hear about gates in the Bible is Genesis 19, where it talks about Sodom and Abram's nephew Lot meeting the angelic visitors at the city gates. In the law of Moses, parents are encouraged to take a troubled child to the elders at the gates, this is Deuteronomy 21, so that the uh, elders can examine the evidence and pass judgment on the case. In the book of Ruth, Boaz meets the elders of the gate of Bethlehem and they settle the matters relating to his marriage with, uh, uh, to Ruth. In Samuel, We've got uh, Eli the priest waiting at the gates for news of his sons and how they fared uh, in the war. When King David ruled Israel, 
he stood before his troops to give instructions from the city gate. After his son Absalom died and the time of mourning passed, he returned to the gate and his appearance at the gate signaled that the mourning was now over and the king was once again attending to the business of governing. And lastly, another key example of a gate would be Esther. Uh, the records, uh, it records that some of the king's servants plotted at the king's gate to murder him. And if you know the story, Mordecai heard it and then went and told Esther. So gates, key thing, um, key concept in the scriptures. It is sort of the public square. Um, it is the place of thinking in the community. It's the place that protects the community. So gatekeepers then, equally important. They were an important part of maintaining order in ancient societies. A gatekeeper had to be trustworthy. He had to be alert for signs of trouble. A gatekeeper, lax in his duties, can cause harm for the entire city or even civilization. If an invader gets past, that gatekeeper brought ruin onto their people. So when you think of gatekeeping, you need to think of security uh, and alertness. That's really what this idea of gatekeeping is. In Psalm 141, the Lord himself is a gatekeeper. It says, set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. This language comes from the idea of the gatekeeper. The Lord himself is the gatekeeper at my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. In Ezra, we read that 139 gatekeepers came from Babylon to Jerusalem. When Nehemiah finished rebuilding the wall around Jerusalem, one of the first positions he appointed was gatekeepers. It's significant because before a city can conduct business, it must be protected from outside invaders. And equally important, the temple had gatekeepers for the same reason. God had given clear commands about temple business and that gatekeepers were part of the process in the temple. Their positions were considered sacred. You can read about this in Exodus, Chronicles, and Nehemiah. So what's the significance of gates? What's the symbolism behind gates? We've heard sort of what the gates did, but actually the gate talks about crossing a border or a boundary. It talks about entering a new place or territory of ownership where the culture and the social norms are different from where you've just come from. It applies to our modern society as well. When I go visit a friend's house, I, in a sense, step into their social order and I'm required to adhere to the rules of that household. So I've crossed an invisible boundary as such. Are you with me? Yeah. When the psalmist writes in Psalm 100, verses 4, enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise, he's encouraging us to step out of the boundaries of our world, our domain, our rule, into the domain of God's rule, God's order, and we give him praise that's befitting to his majesty in his order. Are you with me? So when we think again about gates, we're thinking about territory and crossing from one jurisdiction in a sense to another. So 
there's two applications today that I want to give to you if you're taking notes. The first one, to me, is sort of the most obvious parallel to our own uh, lives, and that's that gatekeeping is about gatekeeping your own heart. Yeah. Number one, yes. gatekeeping your own heart. There's three things in, in this. There is the fear of the Lord, there's your conscience, and there is the Holy Spirit. And I would say the scriptures. So when temptation comes knocking at our gate, the spirit nudges us. And our conscience that is scripture-filled goes, that's dangerous, don't go there. So scriptures like uh, Proverbs 16, through the fear of the Lord, evil is avoided. It's act as a gatekeeper to me to withhold from certain behaviors and certain things. I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Psalm 119. Again, scripture, conscience, the presence of the spirit. These gatekeepers act as... um, they keep us from invaders yeah. that would change our thinking and help us uh, and make us conform to a certain pattern that is ungodly. Are you with me? Yeah. So the sort of obvious parallel with gatekeeping is ensure that in your own heart, the spirit and the voice of the spirit is never quenched. Yeah. Ensure that you understand what the scriptures speak and teach and require of us. Ensure that your conscience and your thinking is washed by the presence of the Spirit. And therefore, we gatekeep our hearts. John Bunyan has a very interesting illustration in which he talks about, um, in, the, in the book, uh, The Holy War, that the, uh, a human life is like a city, and the gates to the city is the nose gate, the, the eye gate, the mouth gate, the ear gate, and the feelings gate. And that assault... Uh, on a Christian comes through those gates, but there is one agent that is really important, and that is the Mr. God-fearing, he calls him. And Mr. God-fear in the nose and in the eyes and, and all those five senses is a way of stopping. I think he's totally right. I would say our um, supreme gatekeeper is the Holy Spirit. And if we don't listen to him, we put ourselves and those whom we love in jeopardy. Because we make decisions and we might go down roads that has consequences. But when we live in godly fear, we heed the warnings of the word. We heed and hear the prompts of the Holy Spirit. And we are safe and our hearts and our lives are protected from Satan's ongoing schemes. Are you with me? My encouragement to you, church, is it's the simple thing of gatekeep your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. Keep it constantly. Stay rooted in the word. Stay rooted in the presence of the spirit in Jesus' name. But there's another aspect of gatekeeping, which I feel deeply is a prophetic call to us as a church in this time right now. And we're going to look at 1 Chronicles 9 to sort of dig into this. The background to this is that David and Samuel appointed 212 gatekeepers for positions of trust in guarding the temple. The scriptures have come up behind me, but it's 1 Chronicles 9, verse 22 to 27. And it goes as follows. All those chosen as gatekeepers were 212. They were recorded by their genealogy in their villages. David and Samuel the seer had appointed them to their trusted office. So they and their children were in charge of the gates of the house of the Lord, the house of the tabernacle, by assignment. The gatekeepers were assigned to the four directions, the east, the west, the north, and the south. And their brethren in their villages had to come with them from time to time for seven days. 
For in this trusted office were four chief gatekeepers. They were Levites. And they had charge over the chambers and treasuries of the house of God. And they lodged all around the house of God because they had the responsibility and they were in charge of opening it every morning. The Apostle Peter in 1 Peter 2 verse 9 talks about us as the church saying you are a chosen generation, a royal, do you know the word? Priesthood. A holy nation, his own special people. Paul evokes Levite, the Levite mandate, onto the church. Paul goes, these Levites, it was one of the 12 tribes, they were assigned to the temple duties, they were the ones who was upholding the uh, uh, temple laws, rituals, uh, traditions. Paul says, you are all essentially priests. So you are all under the priestly duties. So if we share in the Levitical mandate, we are responsible for the house of God. We are responsible for the community of faith. We are the called out ones, the assembled ones, or the church. I believe that God today continues to appoint gatekeepers to the house of God. God's house needs protection. We need to be careful not to become like the world by letting unsanctified thinking redefine how we understand how the Lord calls all of us to live. Despite how uncomfortable and how countercultural what the Lord asks us to do is. The things of God are foolishness to the world. There are some things that we will just never see eye to eye to those who just do not have the revelation of Christ in their lives. And therefore, we are not the moral police force of the world, but we have a mandate within the house of God. So, my question to you, church, is, is God calling you to be a gatekeeper in this time? Are you a gatekeeper? Let's look at this passage from Chronicles. I've got four points that I want to pose to you. Number one, it says that they were in charge of the gates in two ways, the house of the Lord and the house of the tabernacle. So it talks about this entry access again. They were in charge of the gates. It's about those in charge of where are we crossing God boundaries? What about church life? Through a lack of gatekeeping, are we seeing coming in and invading our thinking? What are we letting come through the gates that's changing the way very clearly the scriptures are teaching us or calling us to live? It's interesting how this scripture talks about the house of the Lord and the house of the tabernacle because they were essentially the same thing when that was written. There was no temple built by Solomon. It was only David. So the, the temple was a tent. And so therefore the tabernacle and the temple was the same thing. But it's interesting that they distinguish it there. So I would pose to you that firstly the house of God is talking about the community of faith. It's about us as the stewards of God's heavenly promise of salvation. Who is gatekeeping that promise? Who is stopping that promise from being defiled by all sorts of thinking and teaching 
in the world. Secondly, it talks about the house of the tabernacle, which is really symbolic of worship and encounter. Who is gatekeeping that it's important for us as a community of faith to encounter God, the living God, to worship him in a way that is befitting and right? Number one, they were in charge of the gates of the community of faith and of the encounter of God. You know that um, as stewards of the heavenly promise of salvation, as I put it, it makes me think of Hebrews 2, which says, we must listen very carefully to the truth we've heard, or we may drift from it. Verse 3 there says, what makes us think we can escape this great salvation that was first announced by the Lord and then delivered to us by those who heard him speak. We've got to be careful to think that this can't be lost or we can't lose our way. And who are the gatekeepers in our communities that is helping us to discern what is going on? Number two, posts were assigned by man's authority and God's authority. So this interesting statement that the gatekeepers were appointed by both David, the king, represented of man's authority. Because remember also that God did not want a king of Israel, but God conceded to their request. So it is, speaks of the favor of men, the approval of men, was part of this gatekeeping appointment. And secondly, the prophet, the seer, Samuel, also appointed so, interesting, just a little bit of trivia. Samuel was already dead by this point, so this was posthumously added into the scriptures, which means that probably then, David and Samuel decided this while David was running around under Saul, you know, when Saul was trying to kill him. Him and Samuel would have perhaps planned actually what the governance of the new order would look like. It's very interesting to think that David, when he ascended to the throne, already probably had thought through a lot of this stuff already. Anyway, posts were assigned. I think that it's interesting because if you've got a mandate culturally as a church or as individuals in a church community as a gatekeeper, it is important that you don't feel the call from God only, but also that people recognize it. Question to you, Rock Church, who do you see amongst you that can lead you and help you discern through the challenging issues of our time? It needs the authority and the favor of people as well as God's authority. Number three, the gatekeepers faced in all directions. This speaks of being aware of all types of onslaught. Some are very loud right now, some are quite obvious. Other things might be more subtle. Gatekeepers are there so that we are not caught off guard or thrown around by every wind and wave of teaching or every cultural shift that we're a part of. If we are not careful, we can adopt beliefs and practices that's right by the culture, but wrong by God. Gatekeepers are aware and alert. Number four, I love this. The whole community was involved, covering all areas of God's house. While there were gatekeepers appointed, it says that their brothers from time to time came and helped them for seven days at a time. If you know you're going for seven days to go and help, it's nothing sporadic. It's nothing ad hoc. The community knew that it was part of their duty to be gatekeeping and protecting. So while some in our church community might be key, people of wisdom, people of discernment to help us navigate difficult issues, there's always going to be the need for everybody to support at some point. 
1972, the state of Wisconsin in the US brought a case against an Amish man called Jonas Yoda. The issue was that Yoda, who was part of the old Amish order, um, took his kids out of the last three years of high school. And the reason was is because they felt it contravened their Amish beliefs. They believed that the kids were being exposed and taught values that were contrary to the Amish community. This is, if you go and read about it, a landmark case in the USA. Because in 1973, the Supreme Court ruled in favor of Yoda, stating that while, uh, while you cannot base all cases on religious freedoms, and this was a case around religious freedom, what swung it in the favor of Yoda in this particular case was that they showed quite clearly that this was not a matter of preference in terms of how they wanted to live, but deep conviction evidenced by their lives as Amish people. Not preference, but conviction. As I land what I'm saying to you today, do we believe what we believe out of preference or out of deep conviction? Because one of the definitions about conviction is that you would eventually die for your convictions, but you will not die for your preferences. When we talk about a culture of gatekeeping, are we willing to stand up and die for the things that Jesus said? It's a difficult question, but that's where it leads. We don't want, as a Christian community, capitulating to a worldly narrative within the church. The world is being shaken, friends. Do you read the news? Do you see what's going on in the West? The West is finding its entire faith base eroded, the cultural values that we all have grown up in. I'm not from the UK, but I come from a Western context, a context very much shaped by this. And by the West, I don't tend to mean that all European values are right, and I certainly don't mean that a lot of the cultural issues we're facing in terms of Identity, sexuality, gender is things that we should just push back against. We should absolutely listen. We should absolutely engage those issues. There is a huge amount of pain and frustration and difficulty in all these things. But in the West, we have a culture that is deeply influenced by Christian teaching over hundreds and hundreds of years. Our entire legal system is built on the premise that there are fundamental human rights because people are intrinsically valuable. That is not a secular concept. That concept you can draw back to the Magna Carta and from Magna Carta all the way back to Moses. And what I'm saying is not my opinion, this is documented fact. So if the world we find ourselves living in is being challenged at every level from what identity is, what sexual identity is, your politics, all these kinds of things, and we are not careful, we will redefine what the Lord teaches yeah, in the same light. Yeah. We need gatekeepers. Amen. And we need bravery. Amen. I've got three scriptures as sort of my final slide, which is basically just a call to courage. Mm. Let us not live in fear. Amen. The Lord foresaw these days. Yeah. Let's pray here and where we find ourselves 
the church around the country, the church around the world. Lord, raise up your people. Raise up your people to help us navigate a very, very difficult landscape. My hope is that somebody here today would go, I can sense the Holy Spirit. I can sense the Lord calling me deeper. It's a journey of study. It's a journey of learning. But the Lord raises up his people. And I pray here specifically for your congregation here that you would find the wisdom that you need to tackle some of these things. So let's remain aware of what's going on. But let's not be afraid because the Lord is ultimately the one who holds us. Can we stand? And I just want us to pray.